We're going to take up our study in Isaiah chapter 7 tonight. And there are many instances where it seems that chapter breaks dramatically interfere with the the content. And this is one of those instances where I I think chapter 7 should go all the way to the end of chapter 12. That these breaks of 8, 9, 10, and 11 uh, optically interfere and think that there are different prophecies going on. uh, And that's not the case. There's no stopping point. There's nothing that says, okay, new oracle, change of pace, anything like that. From Isaiah 7 all the way to Isaiah tw- through Isaiah 12 is this one singular prophecy uh, that Isaiah is presenting. Uh, now, I wish I could preach six chapters like that in one shot, but we'd be here for a while. So we're going to have to break them down into some smaller pieces. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to kind of take them in some larger pieces so that we can get a feel of the prophecy Uh, And then rely upon our Wednesday night study then to really kind of break down the verse by verse and the nuts and bolts of what's going on. But I want to give you a feel of what's going on. Chapter 7 begins with Ahaz as the king over Judah. Uh, The situation is fairly interesting as he is ruling. uh, We notice in verse 1, Rezin, he is the king of Syria. And we also have then Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern nation. Those two get together and they decide and they say, you know what we're going to do? We are going to make an alliance together. We are going to attack Judah and we are going to remove Ahaz from the throne and we are going to put up our own king. You see that there in verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabel as king amidst over it. So this is kind of what's going on in our, in our scene is that we have a present crisis for Ahaz and the northern nation and Syria are working together and they are forming an attack and there is great fear because of that. Notice in verse 2 when Ahaz finds out about that it says the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They believe their time is done. They are done for if these two nations come against them. And so I want you to feel the severity uh, and the intensity of the situation that Ahaz and the people of Judah are in. These two nations are about to attack. In fact, the fear is so great that you see in verse 3 that you notice that Ahaz is checking the water supply. He is now preparing for the invasion that's going to come. So that's kind of what's going on here. And one of the big things that needs to be placed in our minds as to why this is so significant is if if we have then these two nations come in and take Ahaz off the throne and put on this guy named uh, uh, the son of Tebel as king in their midst, then what you have is the end of the Davidic dynasty. This is a very big problem that is sitting here. This isn't just simply a statement of, well, you know, we're going to get rid of that guy and we're going to run the show around here. And it leads to some implicit questions that I think are being drawn from chapter 7 through chapter 12. And that's this. If, if Israel and Syria succeed, then what is going to happen to the nation of Judah 
What does this mean for the Davidic dynasty? And perhaps even a little deeper than that, what does that mean for God's covenant that he made with his servant David, in which he said it would always be a descendant of David that would sit on this throne? Be the throne of David that would rule eternally, forevermore, perpetually, and always would be one of his sons on the throne. And now we have a very present crisis where that doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Ahaz looks like he's going to be deposed, and we have now Israel and Syria working together to uh, destroy the southern nation of Judah. So that's where you have verse 3. The Lord tells Isaiah and says, I want you to go meet King Ahaz, and I want you to prophesy to him. And listen to the prophecy that's given in verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Awesome statement. Now God comes along and says, he says, all right, Isaiah, I want you to go talk to Ahaz. He's over there checking the water supply. He's afraid of the invasion that's coming. And so here's what I want you to tell him. It's not going to happen. Their plans will not stand. It shall not come to pass. Even though it looks like these two nations are going to come against you and destroy you and take you off the throne, God says, this is not going to happen in the slightest. In fact, you notice verses 8 and 9 are really some backhanded jabs at them by not calling them names. He is simply saying, you know who these guys are? They're a bunch of nothings. They are mere humans in the path of God's plan and purpose. Who is the head of these nations? The son of Remaliah. Uh, It is simply then the head of Damascus is is risen. They're nobodies before God. And in fact, you get the weight of that there in verse 4. One of my favorite lines there. They're nothing but two smoldering sticks of firebrands to kind of put that in our day and language would be uh, some smoldering logs that are about to go out at any moment they're just a bunch of pile of ashes just sitting there yeah there's a little bit of heat coming off of them but they're about to be quenched in just a moment they're nothing and so here is God coming in and saying you have nothing to worry about you have nothing to fear nothing is going to happen their plans are not going to come to pass The problem that we're going to notice in the story is that Ahaz, as well as the people, are not trusting in God. And that's observed in a number of places. We see it already in verse 3. Rather than Ahaz turning to God in prayer, like we will get to read about later on in the book of Kings, when Hezekiah is under threat and attack, Hezekiah immediately goes to the temple and prays to God and God intercedes. We notice that King Ahaz, what does he do? He starts preparing for battle. 
He doesn't turn to God. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't pray. He just simply relies upon himself. In fact, he goes pretty far with this because when you read over in the Second Kings account, what Ahaz chooses to do is he makes an alliance with Assyria. And he sends the gold and the silver from his palace as well as from the temple of God to the king of Assyria and says, you protect us and you save us. And this is now going to be the thrust of the problem from chapter 7 through 12. Is Ahaz has not chosen to trust God. He has chosen to rely upon an outside nation, Assyria. And interestingly enough, Assyria is going to be successful in this alliance. What we read is that Assyria is going to go and he's going to go attack Damascus, kill Rezin and put all of this away. But that's not what God wanted Ahaz to do. And it's all summed up there in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are unwilling to put your trust in me, then it is not going to work out for you. Your trust, your reliance, your dependence needs to be upon me. And I want to take just a minute and for us to consider that important lesson. That is a really important lesson for us. It is easy for us when things are going good, when things are going according to plan, that we will say, well, we trust in the Lord. We're all with God. We have faith in God. But as soon as things do not go according to plan, when things begin to unravel, when distress comes, or in this situation, when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when it looks like all hope is lost... We rely upon ourselves and no longer rely upon our Lord. And that's Isaiah's message to Ahaz. If you're not going to be firm in your faith toward God, then you're not going to be firm at all. But God is going to strike you down, Ahaz. You're not going to be successful because you're relying upon your own power and your own knowledge and your own might. It is really important for us to be mindful of that. That faith is observed, it is seen, it is tested during difficulties. And this is this moment for Ahaz. What will Ahaz and the people do? Will they believe that God will deliver? And that's the question that we're left hanging with at the end of verse 9. Isaiah has come to Ahaz who's checking the water supply. And and Isaiah says to him, it's not going to come to pass. Nothing is going to happen. Their plans will not stand. In fact, did you notice what he says there in verse 8? He says, Ephraim's going to be shattered within 65 years. That northern nation isn't even going to be there soon enough. You don't have to rely upon somebody else. God is saying, I have your back, Ahaz. I'm the one in control. You put your trust in me and you've got it. Now the big question is, Will Ahaz believe this prophecy or not? Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. What a statement that the Lord makes now. The Lord comes in and says, you know what? I don't even want you to have to just trust what I'm saying to you, that you're going to be successful, that you do not have to worry about these two smoldering firebrands of Syria and Israel. Ask me for a sign. In fact, he says, ask me for an incredible sign. 
as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. You come up with something as ridiculous as you want to come up with it. You know, you almost get a feeling like, Gideon, go get some go, some fleece and let's see what happens here. We're calling for a sign. I will show you that this is the way that it's going to occur. This is what's going to happen. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. Listen to Ahaz's response in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, that sounds so pious and righteous, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, no, I won't put him to the test at all. I don't need a sign. That is not at all what he's doing, unfortunately. I wish that we could say, oh, look at the faith of Ahaz. He says, I don't need a sign. I'm going to trust in God completely. But that's not what he's doing. What he is saying is, I've got my plans. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm putting my allegiance in Assyria. And I'm not going to need any sign from God. I have no interest. My heart and my mind is determined. I will not trust in the plans of God. And that's what you're going to notice is now the anger of God when he says there in verse verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God? Isaiah comes along and says, I can't believe you will not trust God. Bad enough that you are doing these things with the people and you're causing their heart to grow faint, but you will not even put your trust in God. God has come along and offered and said, let me give you a sign to validate why you should trust me. And Ahaz says, I have no interest in that at all. No interest at all. I want to do what I want to do. My heart is set. I will not trust in God. I am going to rely upon my own ways. And so that's what Ahaz's plan then is to do. And so what now what we're going to notice is this interesting tension throughout the rest of these chapters from Isaiah, middle of 7 all the way to 12, is that what God is going to do is he's going to point out to them that now you're going to be judged. The very nation that you have called upon to be your deliverer is now going to be your demise. You have called upon Assyria to save you from Syria and from Israel. And now that very nation is going to be a problem to you. In fact, notice it in verse 20. In that day the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river. With the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it will sweep away the beard also. And he's going to continue on to the, through the end of that chapter describing how Assyria is going to come in. And they are going to wipe you out because of this. You should have trusted me. And since you've decided to rely upon an external nation, that very nation is going to be your downfall. But in the midst of this proclamation of judgment, God is going to proclaim grace. He is going to tell them, I am going to triumph over your failure. I am going to do some things that you would not believe. And so what I want you to see is this tension. God comes into Ahaz and he says, you have a present threat. Israel and Syria are together in an alliance to attack you. And God says, I will save you. I am going to deliver you from this. But because you did not trust me, Assyria is going to come in and judge you. However, even though they judge you, I'm still going to save you. An interesting shifting going on in these prophecies from chapter 7 to chapter 12. 
I'm going to save you from these two nations, but you're going to be judged for not trusting me. But even though you didn't trust me, I'm going to come in and deliver you anyway and save you anyway. Very interesting how this section works. All right. So now listen to what God says he's going to do. Notice it now in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Notice that you have a a very big prophecy here from verse 14 all the way to verse 17 contains one big sign that is going to occur. Let's begin with verse 14. That's important to observe there where he says the Lord himself will give you a sign and that you is actually plural. And so I think what we have is this sign is going to be very big. It is not only to Ahaz himself, but he calls it there that's to the house of David. And so you have already built into this that the king line of David is going to continue, which is what we just said. The plans of these two nations are not going to come to pass. The Davidic dynasty is going to continue on. And so, therefore, I want you to listen, O house of David. All of you kings, listen to what God is going to accomplish. Though Ahaz has refused a sign, God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And I want you now to just observe the various signs that are described or the various pieces or details in this prophecy. The first one we know pretty well. The virgin will conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, and we know that name means God with us. But don't stop there. The sign continues. That son is going to eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse good and choose evil. We're going to have to leave that piece for Wednesday night. Before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the two kings that Ahaz dreads are going to be deserted. And then in verse 17, the Lord is going to bring upon Ahaz and the people devastation, the king of Assyria. The people are going to experience devastation. Ahaz is going to experience devastation. It's going to come from Assyria because they trusted in him. So there's the sign. There's the prophecy that's laid out before Ahaz and before the house of David and all the peoples. Here is this amazing sign here. So the virgin is going to conceive, bear a son, be named Emmanuel, and that son is going to eat curds and honey before he knows how to choose, knows how to choose good or evil. And before he knows how to choose good or evil, these two kings that Ahaz fears are going to be made desolate. And finally... Ahaz yourself, you are going to be destroyed by Assyria. All right, so how do you feel about that information? Interesting sign. And I hope you begin to feel a little bit of the problem that's falling out of this prophecy. Let me show it to you in the scene. What we have going on is, it is pretty evident from the information that we're given here as Isaiah is speaking about events in his own lifetime. Isaiah is telling Ahaz, you should trust God. 
You were supposed to put your trust in God, but you refused to do so. And so here is what I'm going to do, Ahaz. I'm going to give you a sign to prove to you that you are going to succeed, that these two nations are simply two smoldering firebrands that are being quenched. And so this is the sign that is going to be given to you to show Ahaz that his fear is misplaced. He has put his trust in the wrong thing. You should have trusted in God, and this sign is going to be the proof of it. And that's what you see going on is this statement twice over being made that God's going to destroy these nations. You see it there in verse 16. Before the boy knows how to refuse evil or to choose good... These two nations aren't even going to be around anymore. They're going to be deserted. They're going to be made desolate. Thus, you should have trusted me because the king line of David is going to be preserved. You have nothing to fear that these two nations are going to come in and take you off the throne and set up somebody else. You should have put your trust in me. Now, I hope you then catch our problem. The contextual problem here, I think, comes screaming off the page, and that's verse 14. Verse 14, where we have the statement, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And the bigger problem along with that is then Matthew comes along and says this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. When you read Isaiah's account, it doesn't sound like we're looking out there at all. He's talking to Ahaz, and he's talking to the house of David, and is saying, these two nations are going to fall before this child even knows good from evil. It's going to be short. It's going to be quick. So you should have trusted God, but because you didn't, now you're going to be judged. And yet we've got this problem here of a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. And it's evident that that didn't happen twice. So what do we do with what Isaiah is prophesying? What is going on in the scene and trying to put it all together? A little bit of fun for you, and we will go crazy with this on Wednesday night, but let's just keep it simple and let's just kind of walk our way through this. What we're going to notice as we go through chapter 7 through 12 is Isaiah uses some interesting words. He uses words that have a lot of dual meanings, a lot of shadows on them, a a lot of uh, almost, can I say, vagueness to them. They're very interesting pictures. I'm going to show you probably about five or six of them tonight. This is one of the words as well. This word that's translated from the Hebrew Alma that we see, virgin. What's interesting about that is that there is a Hebrew word for virgin that means specifically that. But Isaiah didn't choose that word. But nor did Isaiah choose the word that excludes virginity and just simply means a young woman. He didn't pick that one either. He picked a word that is on the fence of both of them, which is really interesting to me. It's not just simply extreme, okay, a virgin, but it's not just simply talking about any old young or any old woman that would come along at all. It's a very versatile word. And to sum up the days and days of research that I did, and I would encourage you to go check out this word as well. The best that I can sum up with this word is is this, and reading all the arguments about it, is that this word is a very versatile word. It refers to a young unmarried woman who is of the marrying age. By implication, that would be a virgin. They've never been married. 
young woman who's going to be married. But it's not demanded of the word, but it's somewhat assumed of the word. If he wanted to demand virgin, there's a word he could have picked for that. If he wanted to exclude a virgin, he would have had another word to pick. He picked a word that encompassed both. He had picked a Hebrew word that encompasses a young woman of a marrying age who would be a virgin. So that's, I think, one of the interesting things to just kind of gather in this imagery. With that in mind, I want us to consider what the sign could be then for Ahaz and try to understand what is likely being directed to Ahaz and to the people as he makes this prophecy, which verse 16 tells us is going to occur to show that these two nations are going to fall first. Then we'll look at it like this. I believe the message is this then. To Ahaz to tell him that there is a young unmarried woman who is of the marrying age who is going to bear a child. And by the time that child knows right from wrong, so not very long, this child is not going to grow into being like, you know, 50 years old. You know, we're talking about there's going to be a child that's born. And by the time that child knows yes and no and right from wrong, guess what? Those two nations that you fear are already going to be desolated. They're already going to be gone. And so I think that is the the picture that is, is being driven then to Ahaz. You should have trusted in me. This alliance is going to come to nothing. And here's the sign. I would like for us to consider why that would still be a powerful sign. If we were to have a prophecy today that said this... There's a woman in the congregation here who is going to bear a child. And before that child knows right from wrong, the nation of North Korea will no longer be a threat, but will be desolated. And you'd go, ah, that's going to be pretty soon then. Because there's the person. There's going to be born. So within just a few years, that nation won't even be there anymore. Interesting. It is a powerful sign. And I believe that's what Isaiah is trying to point to Ahaz and say, there's something important that's about to happen, something that you can point toward to see that this event is happening soon. Now look at chapter 8. And this is why I'm going to submit to you an awful chapter break, because he doesn't take a breath. He's still going. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet... And write on it in common characters belonging to Mayor Shalahashbaz. And I will get reliable witness, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerberkai, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mayor Shalahashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away from before the king, carried away before the king of Assyria. I want you to notice that that is parallel scene. It sounds exactly the same. He comes along and says, now here's going to be the sign, Mayor Shalahashbaz. And what's going to happen? The same thing. The prophetess is going to bear a child. And guess what the prophet, what's going to happen with the child? Before the child knows not right from wrong, or in this case, verse 4 says, knows how to cry, my father or my mother, what's going to happen? 
the two nations are going to be taken away. Damascus is being the head of Syria, and Samaria is the head of Israel. And so you have then this parallel going on. Notice the parallel continues from verse 5 of chapter 8 all the way to verse 10 is all about now how Assyria is going to destroy you for not trusting in me. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep onto, on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings and it will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all, you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will not. It will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So notice the parallel. After giving in chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, these statements about the sign of Emmanuel, he then goes on to say that once that child's born, and before that child is able to know right from wrong, those two nations will be destroyed, but because you trusted in Assyria, Assyria will destroy you. Chapter 8, you're bearing a son. Mayor Shal Hashbaz. And what's going to happen? Well, before they say, that child says, my father or my mother, guess what? Those two nations that you fear are going to be destroyed. But because you trusted in Assyria, Assyria is going to spread over the land and destroy you. So this seems to be the picture. This seems to be the relevant image for Ahaz. Here's what's going to happen, Ahaz. Here's exactly what's taking place right in front of you. This prophetess is going to bear a child. And this is going to be that sign to you. This is your proof. And isn't it interesting that Mayor Shalahashbaz is tied to the prophecy of Emmanuel in verse 8. Specified as Emmanuel, verse 10. Notice it says, for God is with us. That's Emmanuel as well. And I submit to you, these are not two separate signs. This is one and the same thing. This is what Ahaz was to look forward to and say, you should have trusted in me and this is the proof as to why. Because this child is going to be born and this will be the proof that these two nations are going to fall before this child even can say, my mother or my father, these nations will be gone. However, you didn't trust me, so Assyria will take you away. Now, let's spend some time with the implications of all this. One, this doesn't deny the virgin birth of Jesus in the slightest. And I think what is important to consider, and this is not unusual to studying the prophets, is that what we are observing is that Isaiah is not directly looking to Jesus. His prophecy is not standing in isolation and he's saying, okay, here's the sign Ahaz. In 700 years, there's going to be a child that's born of a virgin and therefore that's how you're going to know that these two nations are going to be destroyed. The, the time doesn't work. That doesn't fit that he would see that. So it makes a much more sense that Isaiah is talking about something in his own time. However, the dual language that we are noting in here allows for Isaiah to be pointing to something greater to come. 
We're going to spend a lot of time on that the next time I get a Sunday night in a couple of weeks. We're going to just observe all of this. So I don't want you to go completely out the window yet. We're going to come around to all of that. But I just want you to get a feel that Isaiah doesn't have to be speaking exclusively of Jesus, that he can be talking about something in his own time, as chapter 8 observes, Mayor Shalahashbaz, as the point for Ahaz, and yet still be speaking in a way that is looking for a greater for fulfillment. Look at the this dual language that we see, and I spelled dual wrong. <laughs> I caught one one typo. There's another. Why not? You know, we need a dual that way too. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Sheer Jasim. Notice that when Isaiah is told to go meet Ahaz, he's told specifically in verse three of chapter seven, "Go take your son with you." And all of the names in Isaiah, all are important. All of them have meaning. Sheer Jasub's name means a remnant will return. Now let me ask you, is that a positive or a negative? And the answer is yes. It's a negative because that means you're going to be taken off the land. If there's a remnant that has to return, that means you're not going to be here anymore. But the positive is... But there is a remnant that's going to return. You're not going to be utterly wiped out. It's an interesting name. It's a dual kind of name. It means something bad now. You're going to be wiped out. But there's the grace of God of but a remnant is going to return. Look at the next name. Mayor Shalashbaz. The spoil speeds the prey hastens is what that one means. Is that good or bad? Well, it depends upon which way we're talking about Mayor Shalahashbaz. If we're talking about God being with Judah and overcoming these two nations, then this is good. The, the spoil will speed and the prey hastens. They're going to get wiped out. We're going to take them out. But if it's referring to Assyria, then it's a negative. The spoil speeds and the prey hastens. They're going to come and get us quickly and take everything away. And so, again, that's why I use the word vague, and it's not meaning that in a bad way, but just simply it can be good, but it can also be taken bad. It can be positive or negative. Even the phrase here, we'll talk about this Wednesday night, about it's talking about the boy eating curds and honey. That's even a curious one. Because that can be also positive or negative. Sometimes you'll read about curds and honey as being something that is good. It is eating of good food. But then sometimes it's used, as it seems to be used here, as the food of poverty. And it's used negatively, as if that's all that you're going to eat. In fact, the the Net Bible translates this as sour milk and honey to suggest the negative food of poverty kind of nature. And so even the phrase curds and honey, is that good? Or is that bad? We already talked about the interesting nature of the word Alma. Rather than taking something absolute like virgin, he didn't pick that Hebrew word, nor did he pick just simply a word that means young woman or maiden. He takes one that means both. It is a young woman of a marrying age who by implication would be a virgin. Curious, again, why the dual nature? Why speak to both? Why not just say one or the other? Again, you have this. And I submit to you, even Emmanuel speaks that way as well. God with us. Well, is that good? Well, usually that's good. God's with us. We're going to be victorious. We're going to win. It's going to be good. He's with us and defending us. But when God comes, He comes with judgment. 
And that's what chapter 8 and verse 8 seems to be describing as Assyria now wipes through the land, O Emmanuel, as God now comes and deals with Judah. And so there's a positive, negative feel even with this as well. I also think it is fairly interesting that when we come into the New Testament, where is Jesus ever called Emmanuel? He's not. I find that fascinating. He's not. That's what the prophecy says. That's what Matthew 1 records. And then go read from Matthew all the way to Revelation, and it's not there. So again, this is curious that we don't have to be troubled by the fact that Emmanuel, God with us, would be tied to the sign of Meir Shalahashbaz, or be tied to Jesus, because neither of them are ever called that title. But it's a description of when they come, it is a sign that God is with his people. So I want you to again feel that tension. We observed it once. Let me remind you of it. God's with us. Those two nations are not going to win. God's with you. But because you trusted in Assyria, judgment's coming. But in my grace, I'm still going to be with you. And that's what this prophecy is doing is I'm with you, but you didn't trust me, so you're going to be judged, but I'm going to come and be with you again. I think that the big question is this. How can Matthew then say this prophecy was fulfilled with Jesus in the first century? And if I had another hour, we'd answer that. That'll be in two weeks on the upcoming Sunday night. We're going to go to Matthew. We're just going to spend all our time in Matthew and look at what does Matthew mean to take this prophecy? Does he have a right to do it? Does he mean it properly? And he comes along and says, the virgin will conceive and bear a child. And I think it's important for us to see that's exactly what happened. Mary is a virgin. A miraculous birth happens. And Jesus is born. And he is God with us to save the world. But how does Matthew use that in that way? Since that doesn't appear to be what Isaiah was directly focused on, but was more kind of indicating with this dual language. So I I feel that tension. I know we should answer that. We don't have time to answer that, so we're coming to that. So I hope you hold that question in your mind. Let me round this out with a couple of important lessons that we learn from what happens with Ahaz and the prophecy of Isaiah. One. There is always a call for the people of God to have faith in the unseen. That is what is all transpiring here. If Ahaz would have believed in the word of God, if Ahaz would have turned his heart toward God, if Ahaz would not have looked at those two nations and stood in fear, but rather turned his eyes to the unseen God, This story would have been dramatically different. And we're called to do that very same thing. That we cannot allow our decisions to be based upon the here and the now, the physical, the what is seen. And so often we can foolishly make decisions that way. Failing to see that we have an all-powerful, eternal God who is with us, who is working for us, that we are to be putting our trust in. So often we we have such a narrow, short-sighted focus and fail to consider how God is working not only in our lives or in this area, but throughout the world. And the need for us to pay attention to the spiritual things, to look to the unseen, to not look to the things of this world, but to see the things of God. Which leads to the second picture that we see in this chapter and really throughout (coughs) chapter 12 is that the enemy is doomed 
Because God is with his people. This is one of the powerful messages of this. And this is the powerful message that we get with Jesus being called Emmanuel. Is this message derives out of this chapter. The message of God with us is you have nothing to fear. God is with you. He is going to overcome your enemies. And it's a promise that is given to us all over the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13 is one of those places. Where God has made a promise, I won't ever leave you or forsake you. You put your trust in me. God is with us. No matter what the obstacle is, no matter how difficult things get, God has made a promise to us that he will remain with us. And you see how that tension works in the days of Ahaz. It looked like there was no hope. And yet God is saying, I'm right there with you. And for us, we can go through things that cause us to believe that we have no hope, that there's no way out, that God has left us. And God reminds us over and over again, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. You keep putting your trust in me and I will carry you through. And even bigger than that, for Jesus to be God with us is the way that God is able to be on our side. By Jesus being born of a virgin, coming into this world, living a perfect life, sacrificing himself as the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that becomes the mechanism to reconcile us to God so that God can fight on our behalf. And I believe that is one of the powerful images of Revelation. One of the great images is Revelation rounds out. You come into the 19th chapter. And you read about the victorious Christ riding on the white horse, glorified as the king on that horse. And he has trampled the enemies. And that is the picture of hope that we have, is God is subjugating the world. He will deal with the enemies. And he is able to be with us and fight for us and provide for us and not forsake us. Because God is with us, as seen through Jesus. He is the Emmanuel. So it's a beautiful picture of what it means for Jesus to be with us and for him to do what he did so that God could then stand on our behalf. And so it's a great picture of grace over the next few lessons. We're going to get to look at how God triumphs in grace over their failures. How Ahaz and the people are failing. And God says, well, judgment has to happen because of your failure, but I'm going to overcome that judgment with a greater grace. And I'm going to send a child who's going to be born, who's going to be the one to deliver you from your sins, chapter 9. And then begin to preach of the hope that he offers in chapter 11. And so this is a building prophecy that begins very vaguely in chapter 7 about this birth that unfolds over the next few chapters and becomes crystal clear that Isaiah now more strongly looks forward to Jesus who will one day save the world from their sins. Pull your song books out and we'll sing it in.